Good morning, everybody. Thank you all for attending this program, Negative Capital and the Freeze Partnership Solution. Uh, my name is Carrie Reeves. I'm an attorney here at Wilmington Trust in Boston, and I co-chair the Estate Planning Committee under the Trust and Estate Section of the BBA. Uh, our speaker for today is Matt Lee. He's from Wilmington Trust uh, in our New York office. Uh, he's going to be going over, over this topic with you guys, and please don't hesitate to ask questions along the way. Uh, we can, uh, he can pause in between and answer, questions, answer some questions and perhaps save some time at the end. So without further ado, I will kick it over to Matt to begin the program. Thanks, Matt. Great. Thank you so much, Carrie, and, and thank you for, for having me. I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to, to be here with the Boston Bar Association. Um, you know, a, a little bit about my background. I actually started my career in Boston at Nutter McLennan Fish, so a real thrill for me to be uh, back here presenting to the BBA, so thank you so much for, for having me. Um, so negative capital and the freeze partnership solution this is a topic that I got into um, about a year or so ago. You know, it, it really grabbed me um, in part because Wilmington Trust and, and our parent company, M&T Bank, uh, we work very closely with a lot of real estate investors and developers. And so as I started to work with them on their planning, a couple of issues came up and, you know, it really seemed like these were things that were worth exploring in more detail. Um, so I spent a lot of time educating myself around this and wanted to, to share um, some topics related to this uh, with the group here today. So without further ado, uh, let's get into the, the presentation um, today. So uh, just some sort of introductory remarks. So clients oftentimes own real estate um, either as part of their business or as an investment. And I guess I should start off here by saying that when I'm talking about real estate, um, I'm primarily talking about real estate like commercial, industrial, uh, uh, you know, bits, real estate that's used for business or for investment, not talking about real estate that is um, residential, primary use, vacation homes. Again, this is um, more of your residential, commercial and industrial properties. But again, clients often have these properties in, in, in some form or another. We have it a lot with our business owner clients that own these properties through their business. Um, and although there's sort of no one size fits all with the properties, um, you know, they, they may vary in you know, size or, or type or use, um, there are certain common characteristics that do come up quite frequently and that those, those can create um, certain planning challenges. So it's very important to, be, to understand what the properties are, what their attributes are, and how that's going to impact the clients and their planning. Um, and certain properties have what we refer to as negative capital attributes. And I'll spend some time today talking about what exactly that is and, and what it means for planning. And where a property has negative capital, um, unfortunately, that is going to create some potential traps for the unwary from a planning standpoint. And in fact, traditional strategies that we may think about for estate planning may not work with negative capital real estate. And in fact, many of those traditional strategies could, could be detrimental or could impact uh, the success of an overall wealth plan. So really important to understand what that is and, and what it means. And when we're working with clients who have these types of, uh, this type of real estate, negative capital properties, they might consider an alternative solution, a solution that doesn't necessarily get as much attention, and that's the freeze partnership and really the focus of, of today's presentation. So I'll talk about what the, the freeze partnership is and how it might fit into a, to a wealth plan. So just to give sort of a, a brief overview of the presentation today, um, I'm going to start off by talking about some common estate planning goals, what we're used to seeing as we work with clients on their estate planning. Um, and talk about the common characteristics of real estate and how that might fit into uh, an overall plan. 
Then talk about what it means when property is negative capital and how that might affect a, a comprehensive wealth plan. I'll then introduce the concept of the freeze partnership, talk about what it is, what it means, and how it might be worth um, implementing or whether it might be worth implementing into a client's estate plan and then review a sample transaction. As with everything though, of course, this isn't gonna be you know, the, the right fit for every client in every circumstance. So we'll talk about some benefits, um, but also some considerations, what clients might think about um, as they consider this type of planning strategy. So again, we'll start off here by just talking about um, some common estate planning goals and objectives. So whether it's real estate, business, uh, market or marketable securities, any asset, you know, there are certain themes and goals that most clients have. And typically at the top of the list, uh, clients are thinking about or we're advising clients around ways to mitigate estate tax. Um, we are in a very favorable environment for wealth planning. Uh, the state tax exemption is the highest that it has ever been. Um, but many clients still, especially clients that are in real estate, have to plan for that inevitable estate tax. And that's, of course, especially too true for Massachusetts residents or residents in New York, where, where I am, that have to have a much lower state level estate tax exemption that they have to plan around. Um, and of course, you know, it's not just current estate tax liability that clients have to worry about. It's future growth and appreciation of their assets. So we have to understand where they are today, where, they're out, where their assets are gonna be in the future, and then of course plan for not just current values, but future appreciation. And even though we're in this very favorable landscape for estate planning, things are not always gonna be that way. And, and the laws that they're currently written, as I'm sure many of you are familiar, are set to sunset or expire at the end of 2025. So we have this somewhat shortened window to work with clients and help them plan around the estate tax laws before the exemption gets reduced at least two and a half, if there's nothing that's done um, before that. And of course, in the last couple of years, we, we've seen threatened legislation to bring down exemptions even before 2025. So mitigating estate tax, very common goal among many clients. Of course, we can't forget about income taxes as well. So many of our clients, again, in, in Massachusetts, New York, elsewhere, in states that have heavy income taxes are very sensitive to, to those as well. And so we want to advise them around strategies that are gonna be income tax efficient um, additionally. So they have to worry about federal income taxes. They may have to worry about state income taxes if real estate in this case is located in a in a state with an income tax. Sometimes they also have to worry about local income taxes. So when we're creating a plan, it's thinking about what are the income tax implications of that particular plan, both for the current owner, but also for future owners. Um, as I'll talk about today, we don't wanna implement a plan that's gonna be really effective for this generation, but it's gonna create an income tax issue in, in the future. And so it's important to, to weigh that, um, do that type of analysis. So not just the future, the current generation, but also thinking about the, the future. A lot of clients too are, are very mindful of cash flows. They may be interested in, in planning. They may be thinking about how do I minimize my estate tax liability, my income tax liability, but are reluctant to part with assets because they rely on those assets to support their, their lifestyle. So another common estate planning goal is making sure that we can plan in a way that's gonna accomplish the first goals, but not impact cash flow. 
And then of course, for clients who have businesses or, or, or real estate empires, um, they're thinking about ways that they can uh, successfully transition that business or that real estate to the next generation. So creating a structure that is going to have some management succession built into it is also going to be a big important part of, of the plan. So those are the common estate planning goals, again, regardless of, of what assets we're, we're talking about. But here today, of course, we're, we're talking about real estate. And so what I want to do now is talk about some of the common characteristics that we see with real estate, um, and that's going to impact planning. So again, real estate, very diverse asset class um, in, in size, in, in purpose, uh, but there are certain common characteristics that we see, especially in property that's, property that's held for business or investment purposes. The first characteristic is leverage. So debt is often used by owners um, to acquire property in the form of a mortgage. It might be that the property is, you know, there, there's about 70 or 80% of the loan to value ratio when a property is, is acquired. So a mortgage is often on these properties, but over the course of ownership, owners may also um, do a refinance of that property. That can be a way to extract liquidity from the property in a tax efficient way. So whether it's a mortgage or a refinance, it's often the case that these properties have some amount of debt located, some amount of debt on them, I should say. In addition to, in addition to high leverage, these properties usually have or often have a low basis for income tax purposes. So basis in short is gonna be equal to the acquisition costs uh, increased by certain capital and improvements and expenditures and reduced by uh, non-cash expenses like depreciation. And so investment and business real estate usually have um, a low basis relative to their firm fair market value for a couple of different reasons. The first is just natural growth and appreciation. We see this a lot in New York and I know in Massachusetts as well. Someone may have bought a property, an industrial property in a less than desirable neighborhood maybe you know, 20, 30 years ago. And over time, that property and, and its value has increased significantly. So somebody bought the property, let's say for $2 million and now it's worth 15 or 20. That's just natural growth and appreciation. But that basis, that, that $2 million basis is substantially lower than its current fair market value. But with business and investment real estate, you sort of have a one-two punch. Sometimes you have the value of the property increasing over time, but you also have depreciation. And what depreciation does is it's going to reduce the basis for income tax purposes. And depending on how long the property has been held, it's entirely possible that the basis may be near zero just because of appreciation. So you have, again, growth in, in the asset value, but you also have depreciation as a result. You may have a very low basis. A lot of real estate owners and investors will also often engage in so-called 1031 exchanges. And essentially what that is, is tax deferred um, exchanges of real estate. So, so taking one piece of real estate, selling it, investing the proceeds into an additional or a subsequent replacement property. And what that does is that it allows the owner to defer the income tax liability. They're, they're not recognizing, realizing gains for purposes of that transaction. But the caveat or the, the, the sort of catch there is that the basis carries over from one property to the next. So oftentimes we'll see real estate investors and owners who have engaged in a series of 1031 exchanges. And even though they may have acquired a property recently, 
because of the, the carryover basis in the 1031, they may have a basis from their original property that they acquired 20, 20 or 30 years ago. So again, low basis for income tax purposes. And what happens is when you have a property that has high leverage, again, that's a, free, a common characteristic with real estate and low basis, the net result can be what's referred to as negative capital. And negative capital is essentially where the liabilities on the property, so the debt is greater than its basis. Again, the liabilities exceed the basis. And that's really what we're gonna focus on primarily today. So when it comes to, to planning with real estate or any other asset class, an owner really has three primary goals, or three, excuse me, three primary avenues that they can explore. Sell it, gift it, or hold it. And when I say hold it, I mean hold that property in, until they're passing. But again, whether it's real estate or anything else, those are really the, the, the main options that they have. And of course, there's sort of variations within it. Um, you know, they could, they could sell it now, they could sell it in the future, but at the end of the day, that's really what the universe of options that they're looking at. And um, unfortunately, where someone has a negative capital property, those three options may be constrained by the tax attributes. And so I'll spend the next few minutes here talking about the implications of negative capital as an owner thinks about those three main options, sell it, gift it, or, or hold it. <clears throat> um, and as we'll talk about, you'll see that some of the, the common strategies, the, the traditional strategies that somebody might consider for these properties may, may not work or may not be as effective, I should say. So let's talk first about selling negative capital. And again, you know, this is not necessarily any different, whether it's negative capital um, or, or uh, just a, a traditional sort of non-encumbered uh, property, but I think you'll see that the impact can be more significant. So whether um, it's a negative capital or uh, just a, a traditional sort of non-encumbered non property, if an owner of this real estate wants to sell it, they're, look, they're looking at um, at least a couple of layers potentially of taxes, income taxes. If again, it's in a state like Massachusetts or New York, they have to think about the federal uh, income tax liability on the unrealized gain, the state income tax liability and the local income tax. So there could be quite a bit of taxes if the property is, is sold. And the tax rates here could vary. They could be um, the ordinary taxes, ordinary income rates, which are gonna be the highest federal level, or they could be more favorable, capital gains rate, 20%. Um, sometimes, again, if these are commercial properties, there may be depreciation recapture under sections 1245 or 1250, that could be 25% or could be more. But the bottom line here is that if the property has appreciated that there's going to be some income tax on that, that gain. And again, that's gonna be the case whether or not it's negative capital, but with a negative capital property, the, the issue, the problem can be exacerbated. And the reason being is because that debt, all that debt is gonna be included for purposes of determining the gain. So the issue that often arises here is a significant amount of so-called phantom gain. And what happens, unfortunately, in that situation is that somebody sells this property and they may have a significant amount of gain. And, uh, and when they, after they've paid off the, their debt, the amount of the tax may consume most or in some cases all or maybe more than the net sale proceeds. So when someone has a negative capital property, selling it may not be an option because there just isn't going to be enough to have it make sense financially, economically. They're not going to have enough to, to after they net uh, after the sale to, to pay off the taxes. 
So oftentimes we see a lot of real estate owners, investors who have these long-term properties and they just, the, the income tax burden is just so significant, especially where it's negative capital that they just are not inclined to sell it. So that's option one. Option two is gifting. So we work a lot with multi-generational families here at Wilmington Trust that are thinking about ways that they can transition their, their real estate to the next generation that will be part of their estate plan or their succession plan. And so we want to think about ways that they can transfer these assets to, to the, their family. Um, and typically, I'm sure you're all very familiar with this rule, when, typically when a gift is made, that is not going to be a taxable event for income tax purposes. There was proposed legislation about two years ago to change this, but the, the rule on the books generally is that when someone makes a gift, that is not going to be a recognition, a realization event for income tax purposes. There's not going to be a, a tax at, at that time. However, that is not necessarily the case where there is a significant amount of debt on the property. And I'll say that um, if you know, this is probably one of the most important points here in this presentation is that where property has negative capital, it's a negative capital property, a gift of that um, could cause income taxes at that time. And the amount of the, the realization, the recognition would be the amount that the debt, that liability exceeds the basis. So this, again, I think is a, a really significant trap for the unwary because you don't want somebody to make a gift of this property um, and have an unwelcome or unknown tax liability in the future because they didn't know that where you have debt in excess of basis, that could be um, a recognition event or that could cause taxes to, upon that gift. So very important point here. So, the, and that's going to, by the way, that's going to be the case where somebody makes the gift to um, an individual outright. But oftentimes when we're counseling clients, we're talking to them not necessarily about making outright gifts of property, but instead making gifts to trusts. And we do a lot of planning with our clients around grantor trusts, grantor trusts, including things like grantor retained annuity trusts or GRATs or intentionally defective grantor trust idgits. Um, and one of the reasons why we we trans we use, me, use grantor trusts so often is because of the non-recognition treatment when that trust is funded. So if somebody puts assets into a grantor trust or they sell assets to a grantor trust, generally speaking, that is not going to be a, a recognition event for income tax purposes. And that's the same for a negative capital property, same treatment. The issue, however, is that the tax result in the future is less certain. So when grantor trust status terminates at the end of the grantor trust term, which in the case of a grant could be at the end of the annuity term or an idget, it could be if the grantor releases certain powers, when those grantor trust powers are terminated, um, that would be a recognition event. And again, that would cause um, income tax at that time. So uh, again, it's, it's a great tour trust can be a great solution, at least temporarily, but we're not sure exactly what it's going to look like in the future. And again, we want to try to avoid any um, unwelcome taxes in the future. Another really important point here is that when property is, is gifted, uh, whether to an individual or to a trust, that property is going to have carryover basis. And what that means is that the basis in the hands of the recipient of that gift whether it is a trust or an individual, is going to be the same as the person who transferred it. And again, where we have a very low basis property, and you know we don't want to necessarily recommend or advise 
selling it because the income tax liability might be substantial. We're not, we might want to be reluctant about putting that same asset into a trust that's going to have to carry over basis because now what we've done is we've maybe been transfer tax efficient, but caused an issue with errors in the future for uh, income tax purposes. Uh, and so that's where we start to think about the so-called basis step up. So if somebody holds property until their, their uh, passing, so this is now I'm talking about the third option, talked about selling property, transferring property, now we're talking about holding property. If somebody holds that property until their demise, it would receive a basis uh, adjustment or the so-called basis step up. And this can be one of the most effective planning tools, especially in the real estate context where we have, again, very often very low basis for income tax purposes. So senior generation has this property, they hold it until uh, they're passing, at which point it's gonna receive a new basis equal to its fair market value at that time. So if their basis in the property is 2 million and it's worth 10 million at their death, then the new basis that the heirs are gonna receive the property at is gonna be 10 million. It's gonna receive that basis step up. And that's gonna give the heirs a lot more flexibility to either sell the property if they want, because there would be no gain or limited gain on the sale, or if they wanna hold it, they wanna plan with it, they've just got more optionality and more flexibility to, to, to do so. Uh, of course, holding property is not without its tax risk. So yes, we've solved now for an income tax issue, but potentially that, that property is gonna be subject to an estate tax. So this is where we have to do the analysis of, is it better to pay estate taxes or better to pay income taxes? If somebody holds property in, in, until their death and it's includable in their estate subject to estate tax, they're looking at a, a federal estate tax of 40%. You know, they could be looking at another 10 plus percent at the state level. So all in, there might be a 50% tax on that asset. And if that family doesn't have a plan to pay for those taxes, which are gonna be due within nine months of death, this unfortunately is where we see fire sales and families trying to sell these properties because they just don't have the liquidity to pay them. So it's really important to do the analysis to figure out, well, is it better to pay income taxes, better to pay estate taxes? What's, what's the plan in both scenarios? Um, and, and sometimes, and this is where we get into the freeze partnership, maybe you can sort of have your cake and eat it too. Maybe there's a way that you can get the basis step up and also minimize the estate tax exposure. So again, this is where the freeze partnership can, can really shine. So uh, I'll talk now about some of the basics of the freeze partnership, what it means, how it's structured, how it's owned, and then walk through a, a sample transaction. So the freeze partnership in a nutshell, the objectives here, again, to sort of tee this up, is to first minimize estate taxes. And the way that it does this is it's a free strategy. You may be familiar with other free strategies, grads, nidgets. Um, this is a similar freeze strategy. When I say freeze, what it's intending to do is, is take the current value of the property and freeze it for estate tax purposes. So any future growth and appreciation of that asset is not going to be subject to estate tax. That's, that's the freeze um, in short and what it, what it means. So helping trying to solve for, for the estate tax but also planning for potential income taxes. So as I mentioned, what we wanna do is try to find a way to preserve the basis step up so that the basis in the property can be um, stepped up to its fair market value at the owner's death. So that's the second objective of the freeze partnership. 
The third objective, which ties back to some of the common planning, estate, estate planning goals, objectives of many of our clients, is around cash flow. The Freeze Partnership is a very effective tool for uh, families that want to do this type of planning, but they don't necessarily want to give up their cash flow. They may be reliant upon the cash, the income that's generated from that property. And so the Freeze Partnership can be very successful um, for, for those clients. So what is it? In, in short, the Freeze Partnership is an entity, whether it's a partnership or oftentimes a limited liability company, LLC, that has two distinct economic interests. And each of those interests is going to be entitled to or receive different um, assets or different entitled to, to, to different you know, features, I'll say. So the first economic interest is the preferred interest. Uh, the preferred interest is one that is going to be entitled to or receive a fixed annual payment from uh, the partnership. The second interest is what's known as the common interest. The common interest generally is going to receive anything that's not allocated to the preferred interest. So that's largely going to be the growth and appreciation in the property. And it may be, depending on how it's structured, that may be some cash flow as well. But the bottom line is that anything that's not going to the preferred interest is going to go to the common interest. Um, and I think of it in many respects, this is similar to, if you're more familiar with grats, it's very similar to a grat in that the annuity is going to flow back to the person who establishes this and the growth and appreciation is going to inert for the benefit of the remainder beneficiary. So again, similar, similar sort of philosophy and structure. This, the, the freeze partnership can be um, a new entity. So someone can create a new LLC that has these, the structure baked into it or this can be done as a recap. So if there's an existing entity, it can be recapitalized to have a common interest and a preferred interest. Uh, typically, and I, and I should say too, you know, there's a lot of different ways that this can be done. I'm, I'm trying to keep it um, sort of at, at a relatively high level, but of course there are, this can be structured a, a lot of different ways. There's forward freezes and reverse freezes. There's all sorts of different things that can be done. Um, but just sort of kind of shooting down the middle here, uh, I'll talk about sort of the common structure and the common ownership. Typically what we see the ownership structure is the senior generation, uh, you know, let's say the G1, they are gonna be the holders of the preferred interest. They're more likely to wanna receive that cash flow. They're more the ones who are gonna be doing the plan. They're looking to freeze the value of the property. Uh, the junior family members, or better yet, a trust for their benefit is going to um, is going to hold the, the common interest. So senior family member is going to hold the preferred interest and junior family member is going to hold the, um, the common interest. Okay, so the, the, the structure is, is relatively straightforward. Again, it's just an LLC that's got these two different distinct economic interests. Um, but of course, nothing is, is simple and straightforward. In order to do this effectively, there are a number of uh, codes or sections within the Internal Revenue Code that we have to be mindful of and we have to plan around. The one that receives the most attention and probably the most important one is Section 2701. A little bit of history here. Section 2701 was enacted in, in 1990, um, really in an attempt to go after some sort of perceived abuses related to this type of planning. I won't go into all the, the details, uh, but 2701 is a, is a relatively new feature of the code, and it's directly intended to um, limit the sort of, you know, some of the, some of the strategies that people were using um, pre-1990. 
But in short, what 2701 is, it's a special valuation rule that applies when someone makes a transfer of a closely held entity, like a partnership or corporation. Here we're talking about partnerships. But if somebody makes a, a transfer of a partnership interest to their family and they retain uh, a certain, um, uh, you know, certain rights over that transferred interest, Section 2701 is going to apply. And what 2701 does is that it affects the way that um, the retained interest is going to be valued. So typically we use standard gift, uh, gift tax value um, mechanisms here. If 2701 applies, there are certain valuation rules and it's important to understand exactly what those are. But in short, what 2701 can do is that it would effectively value or have valued the retained preferred interest at zero. And this is what's known as the zero value rule. And what that does, and I'll talk about how we arrive at values, is it has the, the potential to cause a unintended gift or a deemed gift in the, uh, the common interest. And that's not necessarily what we want to do here. Um, importantly, 2701 is relevant uh, for not just gifts, it applies not just to gifts, but it applies to sales, it applies um, to capitalizations. So it's a very, very broadly drafted section of the code, and it has, and it can apply in a lot of different scenarios. So I just think it's important to understand the, the scope. It is very broad in its scope. It applies to typical gifts, but also transfers and capitalizations. Um, it also there's a series of attribution rules. Family members, as I said, so this applies when somebody transfers a partnership interest to a family member. Family member includes what you typically think of, but also um, trusts as as well. Just say, you know, you could probably do an entire hour here on 2701, um, but I'm just going to hit hit the main the main points. But if 2701 does apply, which it does in the freeze partnership context. Um, the way that we arrive at the valuations and the, the process uh, for determining the value for gift tax purposes is what's known as the subtraction method. So you can see this here on, on the screen. So step one, uh, determine the entire value of the entity. So the entirety of the LLC that's going to hold the real estate in this case is valued. Then we subtract out the value of the preferred interest. And remember, if the if the entity is not, or excuse me, the partnership is not drafted within the scope of 2701, it's possible that the preferred interest could be given a zero value. And so, of course, if you take the, the total value of the uh, entity, then subtract the preferred interest, if that interest is valued at zero, then all of the value is going to be attributed to the common interest, and we, we want to avoid that. So we want to make sure that this is drafted within the parameters and the exceptions to 2701. So after we've determined, uh, let's say you know, for a minute here that the zero value rule doesn't apply, we subtract the value of the preferred interest from the value of the entire entity. Now we know what the common interest is, is valued at. And that's gonna be the, the real um, asset with which the a client would, would plan. It is possible that um, certain discounts may be applied here. So minority, uh, lack of marketability, minority discounts could be available and that might uh, lower the amount of, of the gifting. But that's in a nutshell um, how, how, it's, how it's done. So in order for the zero value rule to not be applied, typically what we see is the preferred interest structured as a so-called qualified payment. In short, what a qualified payment is, it's a fixed percentage value of the, the capital interest. Um, that has to be paid annually and it has to be paid on a cumulative basis. So again, it's a fixed percentage 
paid annually on a cumulative basis. If the preferred interest is structured as a qualified, so-called qualified payment right, then the zero value rule is not going to apply and typical gift values um, would apply. And that of course is gonna make it better for gift planning and, and gift purposes. Um, very important to use a qualified appraisal for this process. The, the appraiser is going to determine um, not just the the value of the preferred interest, but they're also going to help set the uh, fixed percentage return of capital. So they, they have to actually determine what the coupon rate is gonna be on that preferred interest. It varies, of course, depending on what the type of the, the type of property, but uh, you know that's usually in the range of, of like six to 8%. So six per eight to 8% um, is gonna be the, the annual payout from the freeze partnership as part of the qualified payment, right? But very important to use an appraiser, not just determine that, but to determine the overall value of the, the preferred interest. It's important to note too that under section 2701, there is the so-called 10% minimum value rule. Again, this gets back to what, the, what 2701 was intended to um, go after when it was enacted. At least a minimum amount of the value of the, the partnership has to be attributed to the common interest, and that has to be at least 10%. So pre-1990, people used to say the common interest has zero value. Now at it has to be at least 10, 10%. <clears throat> That's 2701. Uh, 2036 also applies in the freeze partnership context. As estate planners, I would imagine that you're very familiar with 2036, essentially a mechanism to pull property back into um, a transfer's estate if they've transferred property, but they have uh, continued to benefit from it or retained control over that. Same, that's gonna apply here in the partnership context. So this needs to be structured within the confines of 2036 as well. Uh, and, and there's a whole host of other partnership income tax issues that have to be um, taken into account, debt and capital shifts. So if it's an existing entity, uh, if, if there's a, a capital shift or a debt shift, so property is effectively moving from one partner to the other, that could cause unintended gift tax consequences. So need to be mindful of that. Um, disguised sale rules, investment company rules, diversification rules. There's a lot of other partnership issues that need to be worked through here. And again, we could probably do a whole session just on this, but uh, just highlighting for, for you um, the, the main ones to be uh, thought, thought of. Okay, so... Um, here is a schematic of a freeze partnership and, and how, it, how it works, how it might um, be implemented. Again, there's a lot of different ways this can be done. This isn't the, the it's not gonna be a one size fits all and there's different ways that it can be done and, and layered. But I did wanna just spend some time walking through a sample freeze partnership transaction, which hopefully you can see up on, on the screen. So in short, um, the senior family member, we'll say that's G1, is going to create a new entity, trying to keep it keep it simple here. That's gonna be the freeze partnership. They're gonna structure this as, as an LLC. They are going to also create a, a family trust. We'll say that's a, a grantor trust. There's reasons why um, to, to still structure as a, as a grantor trust. And, and that could be structured as a dynasty trust. It could be done as a, as a slat, uh, but nevertheless, it should be structured as, as a grantor trust. That, uh, so the, the, the other part of here that this is sort of a, a new element that you'll see up on the screen here, um, a number of practitioners suggest that the freeze partnership should be a part, a true partnership from the beginning. 
And one of the ways to accomplish that is by having a non-disregarded entity be a co-partner with the senior family member. Um, if it's not, if the part, free partnership is not a true partnership for income tax purposes from the beginning, this is not going to really be an optimal structure, especially in the, the case of a, a real estate owner and investor. And the main reason is that, again, these properties have a lot of debt. Um, I'm not going to go into all the partnership rules here, but essentially what we want to have is all of the, the debt on the property uh, attributable to the, the, comp, excuse me, the preferred interest so that when it's retained in the senior family member's estate, all that phantom gain is gonna be eliminated. And so the way to do this is by essentially a disproportionate um, allocation of debt. And that's done by having the non-disregarded LLC, in this case, be a partner with the senior family member instead of just the, the grantor trust initially. So just to, to start here, senior family member creates the entity, they create the grantor trust, um, and then this new entity, this LLC, can be created by their the, the family, junior family members, um, in addition to the grantor trust, and that would be funded with, with cash or, or some other non-uncovered asset, but cash is probably the simplest. And then the uh, that non-disregarded entity would contribute that cash to the freeze partnership in exchange for the common interest. The senior family member would contribute the real estate to the freeze partnership in exchange for the preferred interest. So now you have a freeze partnership that is that holds low basis, highly leveraged real estate. It also has cash and it has essentially two partners. It has the senior family member as one partner and the non-disregarded entity for uh, as the, the other partner. And the that partner is gonna receive the common interest the senior family member is going to um, receive the preferred interest. So that's the schematic. That's generally how it, it fits together. So what does this all accomplish? We've created this structure. What, what is it going to do? Well, um, to talk back to or, or to think back to what our primary goals were uh, for the freeze partnership. Again, it was to mitigate estate tax, achieve the basis of and, and uh, maintain cash flow. This structure will help accomplish each of those goals. So starting with cash flow. You'll recall that the preferred interest is entitled to the so-called qualified payment right. So the senior family member is going to receive back from the freeze partnership a fixed annual percentage based on the value of that of, of the, the, the appraisal determined. Um, so long as they they hold that preferred interest, that's going to flow back to them um, for their lifetime. So that's great. That's a way that they can continue to maintain their their cash their cash flow. So accomplish the first goal. Second goal, mitigate estate tax exposure. So yes, the senior family member is going to retain the, the preferred interest and that's gonna be subject to estate taxes, but the value would be frozen for, uh, for estate tax purposes. Again, we talked about this as a, a freeze. This is the freeze partnership. So by structuring it this way, we would have determined what the value is. It'd be frozen for estate tax purposes. And importantly, all of the growth and appreciation on the in, in the partnership, so essentially all the growth and appreciation, the underlying real estate wouldn't be attributable to the preferred interest, rather it would be attributable to the common interest. So all of that growth and appreciation would benefit the next generation. It, it would, um, in order to the benefit of that trust, 
So all of that would be uh, outside of the, the senior family member's estate. Yes, there's gonna be a state tax exposure, but hopefully over time, if this is implemented early and the property grows over time, that's gonna be a minimal portion, or at least you know, the outsized value is going to be uh, with the common interest. So we've, we've mitigated some of that estate tax exposure. But we've also, at the same time, we've also positioned uh, the client in a way to achieve the basis step up. So they, yes, um, you know, there's the estate tax exposure, but because the uh, preferred interest is going to be includable in the uh, G1, the senior family member's estate, it's going to receive a basis step up. Um, and there, again, there's partnership rules that come into play here, but the bottom line is that if that is includable in their estate, um, the, the heirs, the family will be able to get a basis step up, eliminating some of the, the phantom gain in that property and allowing them to dispose of that interest without the significant um, in, income tax bill that they may otherwise have had it just been an outright gift. And, or if they wanna hold the property, they would have this new entity with a refreshed basis that they could then depreciate over time. So not necessarily risking the, the income tax benefits at the expense, uh, or, or excuse me, I should say the other way, not um, getting the, losing the, the income tax basis to, to, to save on estate taxes. So there's a number, there's a lot of benefits to this structure, but it's not gonna be the right fit for every client in every situation. There's other things to consider. So I, I wanna just highlight a few of those. Probably first and, and most importantly is that in order for this to work, the property that has to be cash flowing. So the real estate has to be generating enough uh, cash flow to satisfy the qualified payment rates. There is some flexibility. There, there's a there's a window during which they you know the the uh, cash flow can be made up in the future. But generally speaking, best practice to make sure that this property, the properties that go into this partnership, are going to have enough cash flow to support the the partnership structure. Um, sometimes the freeze partnership is what's referred to as a as a leaky freeze. Um, this is because. It, again, the, the qualified payment right is going to be determined by market forces. And, and that's, you know, sometimes, as I said, in the six to eight percent range, that's quite a bit higher than what we would typically see, even in this rising interest rate environment for um, typical or other freeze strategies, I should say. So like a GRAT is going to be, you know, a much lower, low, again, at this point, like a low single digit annuity is going to be, percentage annuity is going to be paid back to the grantor. An IGIT, same thing. It's going to have a relatively low um, payment on a note if it's structured as a sale. The freeze partnership, the annual payment is going to be significantly higher. It, again, in, in this, especially in this environment, you know, if it's six or eight percent, that's going to be more than a grant, more than a, 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 a note on an IGIT. And so sometimes that's more than the senior family members need. Um, and if that's the case, there may be more going back into their estate than uh, makes sense. And that's where you get the leaky freeze. Essentially, it's leaking assets back into the grantor, or excuse me, the, the transferor's estate, and that not, may, may not be as efficient from a tra transfer tax standpoint. Uh, you know, this is as I'm sure you, you're 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 seeing. Uh, this is a complex structure. Um, it requires a client who is committed to to this, um, and it has a team that is able to advise them on this and to maintain the structure. This is definitely not a, a set it and forget it planning solution. It's something that needs to be carefully monitored and implemented. So it's administratively complex. So I think it's that's really important to to make sure that the clients 
understand what it is that they're doing, what they're getting into, and the potential, uh, you know, the benefits, of course, but also uh, what they you know, could be looking at in terms of, um, you know, the administration going forward. So I'm going to uh, wrap it up here and, and happy to take any questions that people may have, but just some sort of concluding remarks. Again, you know, we at, at Wilmington Trust, and I'm sure you all as well, you know, work closely with clients who have um, real estate holdings, whether it's part of their business or, or as an investment and unique asset class. There's you know, sort of no one size uh, fits all. There's very diverse, but there are certain common characteristics within real estate that can create some traps for the unwary. And, and you know, today we've been here and talking about negative capital. Um, negative capital, if it's not properly planned for, can uh, create some serious, some serious issues for the owner. So it's really important as advisors that we understand what our clients have, what the tax attributes are, and what the potential planning implications for that can be. If a client has a negative capital property, um, traditional planning strategies like GRATs and IGITs may not work. They may not be as effective. And so it's worthwhile to think about an alternative in this case, we're talking about the, the freeze partnership. Freeze partnership can be a very effective planning tool in the right circumstance. Um, and it can be the most effective, I will say, for certain clients to achieve their short and long-term goals. So um, that's it. Again, happy to take questions, but I appreciate the time and opportunity. Thank you so much for, for having me. And um, Carrie, I will, I guess, kick it back to you. Thanks very much, Matt. That was great. Uh, I'm not seeing any, any questions at this time. Uh, so I would just like to thank everybody who attended today. Thank you again to our speaker. And I hope everybody has a wonderful uh, rest of the week. And with that, I'll kick it over to Devin for some final words from the BBA. Thanks very much. Just wanna hop on and say thank you so much to our panel as well. And thank you to our audience for joining us. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Thank you.